So this week's Parsha is Parsha Toldot. Um, and it, you can find it on page 173. It's chapter 25 of Genesis, verse 19. So 173. Oh, I got to tell, I thank Gail publicly. Did you have fun leading your... I have to say that you know that we've been doing this long enough that you know people are ready to, to s- do anything. Ready I mean, to study Torah. Sat here and the group we read the portion. Good. Good. Oh, I, have to, I just got a word that Ruth Hirsch, who was in the heart exploratory, Steve just said, "Good, still resting a couple days, no stains, no blockage." Good. Ruth had a had some, had a, a scope put up in here to see what was up with her heart, and it sounds like very good news. Good. <sighs> yeah, keep us going, doctors and healers. So this is the story of the birth of twins, Esau and Jacob, and there are so many directions we can go with this. And I, I, I follow my um, nose in a few directions, and we'll see where our conversation goes primarily. Um, so in this week's portion, Jacob and Esau are born, and they grow up, and... <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> there we go. And uh, first... Esau sells his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of lentil stew. And then the next, that's in chapter 25. And then in chapter 26, it tracks Isaac's journeys uh, with uh, Abimelech, the king of uh, the Philistines, isn't it? And, uh, yeah, and... uh, the wells he digs, and, and he, this, we're not going to focus on chapter 26. Sometimes we do. Because then the narrative picks up when Isaac is old in chapter 27. And his eyes have been darkened, from, they can't from seeing. And he thinks he's about to die. I'll just point out that the commentaries don't miss the fact that he actually lives another 60 years after this which says something about fears of mortality, doesn't it? I mean, um, in, it, but more than that, uh, and uh, it's when, with Rebecca's uh, uh, initiative, Jacob dresses up as Esau and receives the blessing of the firstborn, which was supposed to be Esau's blessing. So this is a very, very famous and dramatic and important portion. <coughs> I was rereading, as I always do, Aviva Zornberg's take on this part. She, uh, and she begins by pointing out, and I'd like to point out, that one of the laws, one of the sort of basic rules of the Torah is that what goes around comes around. And that your moral actions or immoral actions will r- somehow, somewhere in your life, come and impact you in the future. That is the sort of moral narrative thread of Torah, which is consistent. 
uh, there. And we've studied in the past years all the ways the, with, with, really liter- with really ingenious sort of um, use of language. Uh, Jacob's trickery is then uh, worked on him, especially by his uncle Lavan Laban, when he runs away and spends 20 years. And so there's this, there's a moral, um, there's a moral consequences in the Torah to Jacob's um, uh, immoral behavior, his tricking behavior. (coughs) However, and (coughs) there's a whole other level of the story here that's not about moral uh, um, accountability, but that, as I like to say, I want to approach this on the mythic level of Jacob, and, and we've talked about this in other years, but I really want to explore this this time. Not of Jacob and Esau as distinct brothers, individuals, but as Jacob and Esau, as twins who are halves of a whole, right? Because what's the description of Esau when he comes out? Hairy and red all over. And Jacob comes out and he is smooth. Um, uh, Esau is a man of the field and Jacob is a man of the tents. Esau is a man of action. Jacob sits in the tent. Isaac loves Esau. Rebekah loves Jacob. Now, this is, there is no either or here. It's not that this is the story of individuals, a family. You know, there's a lot to be told last week if you talked about uh, Abraham and Sarah as a marriage, you know, and how they behaved as people. That's part of how this story works. But there are, as we've explored in past years, um, there are these really um, kind of archetypal um, mythic motifs going on here. One year, many years ago, we compared this myth of the smooth-skinned, refined, uh, domestic twin and the wild, you know, emotional, active, hairy, uh, hunter, hunter, right? Um, and we compared it to uh, the ancient Sumerian myth of Gilgamesh and Enkidu, where um, in that myth, Gilgamesh is the king of the city, and it, and he's a he's a, um, a he's a a um, what's the word? Tyrannical ruler. He treats his people horribly, and they complain to the gods and gods. Gods create a twin for him, who is Enkidu, who is all hairy, lives in the wild, in a state of kind of um, uh, harmony with all the animals. And Gilgamesh and Enkidu, it's a long, very interesting tale of how they meet and become, essentially, become one. 
And at the end of the tale, Gilgamesh becomes a benign and ruler of his people because he had to integrate something into his being. But in the process, Enkidu dies and death comes into the world. And so on a mythic, on this level of human experience, what if Jacob, so put the moral one, leave the moral one in, in, in mind, but what if Jacob, in order to become Jacob, had to do what he, had, what he did in impersonating his brother? What if there was something that Jacob had to inhabit by hook or crook that was going to bring chaos and difficulty into his fa- and pain into his family's life in order for him to individuate and at the same time was what was necessary for him to become a complete person. So now we're in the realm of deep psychology, right? Not in the realm of just, uh, just right and wrong. Do you follow what I'm saying? Yeah, and that's what was grabbing me this time. So you're um, saying that duplicity can work to the advantage of the community? I'm saying that life's paradoxical, and that to become who we're meant to be, sometimes we have to uh, do things that uh, don't seem that that in our in our upright, upstanding in the day to, in the daylight, you know, are would seem wrong or bad. Um, duplicity is an interesting word because they are a pair, right? Jacob and I'm just thinking about the word duplicity itself, uh, um, which just occurred to me when you said that. Yes, Barb? It's just too much of a coincidence. I have to share this. This morning my son texted me and he said that one of his, he has identical twin boys, four years old, that one of them in nursery school, and they're in two separate uh, preschools, when asked to draw a self-portrait, draws two people. Wow. Yeah. So I, I, it's not totally. It's 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 on the right track. It's, like it's on the right track. In other words, I'm not gonna. I'm. I want to explore these thoughts with you. I'm not. I'm not ready with the answer. I think also the fact is. Make sure you talk to everybody. That um, Jacob was holding on to Esau's heel. Mm-hmm. So it's like there is something of the even a metaphor, or you know. We are bound together. He, that's right. So with that in mind, also I'll point out that um, I looked at a lot of the traditional commentaries, uh, which I will uh, cite here from time to time. So with that frame of reference in mind, I want to do a close reading of this beginning of the, of the uh, chapter and the descriptions, close reading of the descriptions of Esau and Jacob. <coughs> I would love it if you said something. <laughs> um, I don't know if any of you know this book called Jacob Have I Loved. It's a young adult novel yes. by Catherine Patterson, who's a yes, Christian yes, writer who also wrote Bridge to Terra Bethia, which is just Oh, really I know that book. It's a beautiful book. Yes. And I just wanted to recommend it because it is like a midrash, and it's two sisters, and one of them is a singer. It was very important to me as a kid, this book. Uh, Tell me the title again and then keep talking. Jacob talk- Have I Loved. Jacob Have I Loved. Keep talking about it. And what I like, what I'm just flashing on right now is that 
there's a sense in that book that the integration of the family and the integration of the self sort of happens simultaneously. So healing the sibling relationship and then also healing the sort of dual nature, you know, the sort of, if we see Jacob and Esau as one person, mm -hmm. that, that those are like the same practice, just in a, on a different scale, in a mm -hmm. way. That the book is just so, so beautiful. Thank and you. it's such a feminine, it's like a feminine retelling of this. And that's important because I know from my experience as a, ma as, as, as a man and growing up as a, as a male that I relate to this idea of the, um, uh, the, the part of me that, that's unformed and, and sort of mild and the part of me that's out in the world and the need to kind of um, integrate those as I become my, my fully, as full of my, uh, the self I was meant to be. I don't know if it's the same thing. If, if, I don't know how it, it, how it relates for women listening to the same story. Yeah. And so I'll be curious to hear about that. And do you, what do you think, Nishama? Well, yeah, I mean, I would even go gender-wise. I mean... I just needed to bring it up because... No, no, I think that the, how we cope with the various seemingly opposite or different aspects of our being and what constitutes the being right. from a physical, from a cognitive, from an emotional... There's so many different pieces, and, and many of them are in more stark contrast than the other. Because I can be sociable, and I can be quiet and seclusive, but it's not an extreme, so I can go either way. Mm -hmm. And then there are ways in which I was an anathema to my family. Oh, because <laughs> of who you... Uh -huh. I mean, various <laughs> ways where they didn't know what to do with me. So it's Good. all part of that. Thank you. Yes. Struggle to be whole. Thank you. Marka, you want to add to that? Yeah, I think there's also a mythic trope. I can't think of any examples right now, but where uh, heroes were originally twins in the womb, and then they absorbed their twin, and that sort of mm. allows them to come out as a more integrated person to begin with. That's so interesting. The story that I, we also explored many years ago was the Grimm's fairy tale of Iron John, uh, who is this... Um, uh, He's hairy all over and red. That's why his name Iron. So it's so much like Esau, and lives in the forest and is dangerous, and then gets captured, and is put in a cage. But the young prince, the little boy, um, his golden ball rolls into Iron John's cage, and so when he gets it, he lets Iron John out. And the rest of the story, which I was just reviewing briefly before the class, uh is how for the little boy to grow up to be the next king, he has to befriend Iron John, and they have to become connected to each other. Mm -hmm. So it's something about our Yetzer Hara, our unruly um, passion, power, sexuality, because hair, by the way, oh, hair is all about power and sexuality in so many ways, as I understand it. Um, in its in its symbolic mm -hmm. meaning, you know, something that's unruly, right? Something that's that dirt gets tangled in. Something that's you know that's uh, uh, and and pubic hair when you reach puberty, you know, all of it is an eruption of 
vitality, but also, you know, this, this unmanageable energy. And I think, I think this idea of hairy and red all over and, you know, like, do I have to say more? <laughs> I think anthropologically they would call it the raw and the cooked. The raw and the cooked, which is the? The raw, the animalistic, ah. and the cooked that's been sort of refined and brought into society. Brought into society. So, and that would be, again, since we talk about so much in Judaism, the Yetzirah and the Yetzirah Tov, the, the Yetzirah is, is, is that power, that unruly, undomesticated power, raw power of a life, that our task as civilized human beings is, is not to abandon it, but it's rather to somehow bring it, to, to, to prepare it, to bring it in, to, so that we can be the masters of it. When Cain is um, uh, uh, upset because God has preferred Abel's um, offering to his, God says, sin crouches at your door. It's the word of a beast. But you can master it. Which is, John Steinbeck wrote a whole novel about that line, right? That East of Eden. I mean, I, I should reread it. It's been so long. But I remember when I read it, I was, I was, it was one of those books that I was completely absorbed in. Uh, yes, yeah, sin crouches at the door, but you can master it. Other people have hands up. Yes. Sorry. Can't forgive uh, uh, <clears throat> Jacob. I mean, you can't me, forgive Jacob. To me, not only because he's his brother and he's a twin. Even if you put all that aside, the man came in hungry and desperate, and you took advantage of him. Right on the moral level, Jacob has teshuva to do, which it takes him twenty years to do until he comes back from Laban, twenty years with Laban, chastened, wiser older, and he comes to meet his brother Esau. And in that episode, which is two weeks from now, he sends Esau gifts, he wrestles with the angel all night, he goes up to Esau ready for Esau to slay him because Esau has 400 armed men with him, and Esau, it turns out, has already forgiven him. And Jacob says, take my blessing, please. And Esau says, I don't need your blessing. I have, I have plenty. And Jacob says, please take it. So in the moral accounting of this story, there is this moment when Jacob, who now has a new name, Israel, because he has wrestled and, with God and not succumbed, can offer the blessing that he took that was not his right back to his brother. And they embrace and they weep. Right? So I can forgive Jacob when you keep reading the story. Right, right. Because he does go back to his brother. And I can't remember, do, do we know or have an approximation as to how old they were when this occurred? This is a witch. When, when, when he asked them for his birthright, I'll, I'll give you food if you give me your birthright. Mm, the Midrash likes to try to calculate all this, but there's no evidence, it's not clear in the story how old they are. Right. Okay. It's not clear. But, so I want to go back. So, in the morality tale of a human being being morally accountable, Jacob has to pay and learn and grow and then go meet his brother again. And satisfyingly for me, that does happen in the text. But I'm looking, at, I want to sort of explore a different level uh, at the same time. Yes, Gary, and then Martha. Um, I'm going back to this 
where you started. Uh, and, and last week, I, you, you mentioned East of Eden. I just finished reading Inherit the Wind. And the, the, the quote there, I forget where in the Bible it is, is that he who soweth trouble in his own home shall inherit the wind, and a fool shall be his master. Right. I'm wondering if what the Torah might be telling us here is that the blessing itself is fool's gold. And, oh, wow. And that something that we place our faith in that be, can be gotten so easily through falseness um, can only come from an infirmed human being. And that you let it go. Let it go when it's you realize not that you... the blessing itself that means anything. I never actually needed this. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yes, I understand that one, too. Yeah. Uh, Martha? Um, so much uh, had to do, the last time we were here, with the um, meanings of names. Yes. And so I'm asking, are there meanings to be gleaned here from Jacob's name, from Esau's name? From yes, Esau? there are. Okay. There are. Um, so, Esau, Esav, seems to be a play on words. Uh, it's not clear why they, why it, about that. Uh, but uh, his name is Esau and Edom. I'm looking at the... Esau derives from an Arabic root, meaning covered with a hairy mantle, some scholars suggest. While some say it might derive from the Akkadian Esho meaning tangled or confused. Well, I would say a hairy mantle and tangled aren't that uh, far apart. So his name means hairy. Um, and the interesting thing about hairy, again, thinking about, I was reading a lot about and thinking about hair as a, as a um, metaphor and as a, uh, which is that the word se'ar in Hebrew is hair. The word se'ir is um, a um, satyr, S-A-T-Y-R. Okay, a goat demon, a uh, or what would you? How would you translate satyr into? Yeah, yeah. So his ve the very word hair seir seir, and the word seir just tells you right away who this guy is. Right? And then there's the description. Where does he hang out? What's he do? You know, he's, he's, Esau is not evil. There, there's, he's, um, he's wild. He's untamed. Is uh, one thought to be more intelligent than the other? Jacob and Esau? Mm -hmm. uh, Jacob is thought to be more intelligent. I think it depends how you define intelligence, and I actually want to talk about that. Did I see another hand, Bob? Oh, wait, names. So Yaakov, yeah. so Esau's name, along with the descriptive of why he's named Esau, is very related to, to, this, uh, to, this, to this satyr quality, this uh, goat demon, this uh, the, the half, you know, pan even, Dionysus. I don't know if we can get there. Um, uh, and Yaakov, it says uh, later, Akev is heel. Because of his holding on to the heel. Mm -hmm. ah. But it also means Yaakov is a heel. Ah. <laughs> um, and it's interesting that those words... Which is a 
words that have the same connotation in Yes, Hebrew because Christian. akuf means crooked in Hebrew. Oh. Not straight. Oh. So one of the things about Jacob's name is that he gets the name Yisrael, which means one who wrestles with God, but it could be read as Yashar El. And there's evidence elsewhere in the Torah to support this, which means God's uprightness and straightness. So his new name goes better, from crooked better name, better. to straight. Very good. <laughs> crooked to upright. What? Why it goes back and forth. And after that, as we've discussed, Jacob in the rest of Genesis is not always called Israel. Sometimes he's called Jacob and sometimes he's called Israel. And we've talked a lot about whether these are states of being, whether he's like all of us kind of mm, going between his new higher found integration of self and his older way of being. That's a fascinating thing that we've discussed. So that's why Yaakov means heel and why since Akav also means crooked mm-hmm. um, and why it seems to hold for me in English and in Hebrew. That's fascinating, isn't yeah. it? Mm-hmm. Now, um, a Bob, yes. One could also make the case for Jacob that he shouldn't be blamed too much for tricking his father because it wasn't his idea. He was set up by his mother. That's right. Uh, she told him to do this. And what he, to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and let's, let's again think about it both in terms of family dynamics but also in terms of a, 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 a sort of a, a myth, a, a deep story about who Rebecca is in all of this and who Isaac is. Yeah, so I agree with you. What we can say about this story definitely is that it's morally ambiguous, right? Because Rebecca is doing what Rebecca knows needs to be done so that the divine plan can be fulfilled because Rebecca is the one who inquires of God and is told that the younger, the older shall serve the younger. So Rebecca is the only one with a sense of the of the destined outcome of all this. And how does she attain that? How does she achieve it? So I'm sort of saying morally, this is a very morally ambiguous story. Um, we're not going to be able to be completely satisfied by almost any answer we come up with. On the other hand... Oh, good. <laughs> on the other hand, Rebecca is Laban's sister. Laban was a certainly shifty, uh, deceitful person. Yeah. That's right. Uh, um, there's a whole, we, we should make up sort of the, the family star here of all the uh, intersecting relationships in this family system. That's right. Uh, yes? Wasn't that also how we thought that Sarah could be forgiven for what she did to send them out Hagar to and Ishmael out into... Because she foresaw that this is what had to Right, we talked about this last year. It seems that the women in Genesis are actually the ones who, um, who intuit and drive the story in the direction it needs to go in. We talked about that last year, or was it the year before, when we, when we studied Genesis and looked at the incredibly potent role the women characters play in making the, making the story unfold the way it unfolds. That's a whole other fascinating, fascinating thing and lots of ways to describe it. Yes? Um, in verse um, in 34 
Uh, you mean on page 174? Yes. Uh, does that mean that, what is the meaning of disdain in this case? Is spurn. It to spurn it. He just like... He just like didn't care. Yeah, he was hungry and he gave it away for a bowl of pot, a bowl of, uh, of, of pottage, as it said. So he didn't really have any respect for the birthright or his father or... We don't know. We don't know. I'm, I'm saying, everybody, we, we have to be... We have to be able to hang out in this morally ambiguous story. Right. And, let, and that's why thinking of it as a dream or a myth, rather than a morality play, might unfold new perspectives to us. If we can just, just tr all of us want to know who the good guy is, who the bad guy is, why this happened, why that happened. And I like doing that too. And I've woven some really, we've woven some really satisfying stories out of that. But today, if we call this the shadow side of Torah, then I don't want us to necessarily try to bring everything to light, but let it, let it all be there. But yes, um, Beria? Uh, I don't remember how you spelled Esif. Samak or with Shin? With a Sin. Esav? Yes. So Ayin, Sin, Vav. Huh? Esef is grass. That's what, uh, that would be ayin sin bet. This is ayin sin vav. However, that's very nice because Esef is grass, the grass of the field. So his name is very earthy in that way too. So the, I, I think that's appropriate. I would, I would make that link, that sound like link. Who, someone else had a hand up. Uh, well, I did originally. Yes? I, I want to comment on Rebecca's intuiting. In my understanding, it's more obedience. If one hears the voice of God and one follows, it is not. It's open for question, of course, whether there's an intuition, but there's also obedience. But I also want to talk about what comes around, goes around. Uh -huh. So Esau is, is unruly and he has disdain for his birthright. And by Jacob's actions, He's brought to a place where he not only survives, but he expands. He rules in a way that works for him. So what we call immoral in the, in the, in the view of immoral, and I'm pretty hard fast about what's immoral, uh -huh. but I'm also wise enough to know that who knows but the very consequence of what we consider evil deed. In his final unfolding brought forth something so positive that's the that's right for me that's the that's that's the uncertainty that we have to live with uh and esau doesn't have a tragic life in the torah no not at all he doesn't have a tragic life he uh it, it and so that's interesting isn't it okay so now yes gail Jacob's life is tragic. Well, he sees it that way anyway. I mean, at the very end of his life, when Pharaoh says, he says, well, losing his son is pretty tragic. Sad. Yeah, but, and, and he's, he, I mean, the moral piece. What does he say when he's sad? He's a bad one. Um, and the moral piece, I just want to say, it continues. It's not just the deception about his marriage. He loses his son. 
So the loss of a child is repeated again and again in these motifs. You know, he disappears to his parents when he leaves for all those years. Um, there's the arcade. I mean, there's an endless piece of this. And the other piece I'm thinking, I was thinking like Oshama, that there's a thread here about what does it mean to follow God's will? Because it comes up, it's come up repeatedly in these stories that somebody's following God's will, and the outcome is mixed. Uh -huh. <laughs> you know, it's very mixed. In terms of the consequences for the people involved, it's, it's very mixed. Mm -hmm. And the last thing I was going to say is that, yes, he's committing an act of deception when he steals first the birthright, the blessing, and the birthright, and then the blessing. Um, but particularly with the birthright, he, if we're talking about this mythically, this is the first step where he is taking on Esau's. <coughs> um, say that again. This, I was coughing. When he takes, <coughs> he takes Esau's birthright, in terms of the mythic piece of this, is the first step of his taking on Esau's identity, which he needs to do in order to do everything else he does in his life. Yep. So, I mean, it's a literal taking on of identity yes. in the way that dream language and does it. That, that's all that's right. That's right. To become himself, Jacob has to do everything that's going to happen here. Oh. The original self is lacking a whole half. Mm -hmm. Yes. They're each lacking the other half. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And however it works out with his brother, he somehow still tries. But Jacob needs to be more than he is. Okay. That's yes, that. that's right. That's right. Thank you. That was very good. Um, I was looking at my notes. Jacob's Jacob is described um, just in terms of words. Later, when he's going in, when Rebecca says... Um, go into your father. He says, but Esau's sa'ir, hairy, I am chalak, which means smooth. But if you look up chalak, it means smooth in every regard. Slippery. It also means blank. Um, it's a really interesting word. And it also, chalak, uh, means incomplete, partial. So I just went to town with that word. Um, okay, so in that, anyway, thank you, Gail. Those are great points. Um, let's, let's read a few verses closely on, verse, on page 173. Ve'ele toldot Yitzchak ben Avraham. Avraham holid et Yitzchak. And this is the line of Isaac, son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac. We could spend the whole class on that verse, but we won't. Isaac was 40 years old when he took as his wife Rebekah, daughter of Betuel, the Aramean of Padanaram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean. Uh, and Isaac pleaded with the Eternal, Lenochach Ishto, on behalf of his wife. Nochach also means um, opposite. Uh, so the Midrash talks about how they were on either side of the room praying, but that, that's used, it's, Nochach's an interesting word. Ki akarahi, for she was barren, childless. 
Ve'ayaterlo Adonai. And the Eternal acceded to his entreaty. Vatahar Rivka Ishto. So his wife Rivka became pregnant. Vayitro Titsu Habanim Bekirba. And the sons Yitrotsutsu, it says, pressed against each other within her, inside her. <coughs> Yitrotsutsu is an interesting word. It can mean to, um, and the, t- the, the commentators spend a lot of time trying to figure out exactly what Yitrotsutsu means. It means, it can mean sort of tussled, uh, but Larutz is to run. So, Here's what they say. So just listen to this. This is the, this is the classic Midrash about this. Whenever Rebecca was walking down the street, if they walked by um, the Academy of Shem and Eber, the Yeshiva, <laughs> the place where we're studying Torah, Yaakov would struggle to go in that direction, run in that direction. And whenever they went by pagan temples, Esau would struggle to go in that direction. Now, I learned this when I was in day school as a kid. And um, first of all, I always wondered, wait, the Torah hasn't even been given yet. What do you mean, yeshivas? What's going on here? I didn't understand at the time that the rabbis, in their context of studying this, are telling telling a story using their, their context. But... If I take that further into um, this dreamlike quality, Jacob is going to be born and is going to be Ish Tom. Tom means, Tom's hard to translate. Simple. Subtle. Uh, uh, it means subtle. Uh, homespun is what they have here. Um, Um, but it's somebody who wants to dwell in the tents. And they say, what tents did Jacob dwell in? In the tents of Shem and Ever. Shem and Ever were the um, teachers of Abraham. Okay, so when we were here a few weeks ago, we talked about Shem, one of Noah's three sons, and his great-grandson, Ever. And in the rabbinic midrash, Shem and Ever are the wisdom keepers of Torah. They are the spiritual teachers who, who, who bring the wisdom, uh, who, it's so non-chronological and completely illogical, so forgive me. Um, it, but remember, Shem is one of the three sons of Noah, the one whose name means name. And when we studied that portion of Noah a few weeks ago, Names are crucial in the Torah because names give you your selfhood and your identity. His great-grandson, Ever, the reason he's chosen is that's Ayin Bet Resh, which means, and the word Ivri, which is Hebrew, a Hebrew, comes from Ever, which means either to cross over, mm -hmm, and if you're crossing over, you are both a, you're going into new territory. Abraham is referred to as a Hebrew, but the word Hebrew is used very only rarely in the Torah. It's how the Egyptians refer to the Hebrews. 
to the, to the descendants of Abraham. It's how the Philistines refer to the descendants of Abraham. So it's a very interesting term that um, spiritually comes to mean someone who has crossed to the other side. It may come just from Everlehardain, from the other side of the Jordan River. They came from Babylonia. They came from across the river. So that may be a physical, geographical explanation of the name. But the spiritual explanation of the name is that they were boundary crossers. They crossed into uncharted territory. They were spiritual seekers who wanted to know and understand God, the one mysterious source of all. But to cross an Avera in Hebrew, and this is where we get into the, the moral ambiguity again, an Avera in Hebrew, which means is literally translated as a transgression because it's a sin, an Avera. Um, and so somehow to transgress puts you in unknown territory that is both um, necessary, but also, and the, the way to become whole again, to, to, be cut, to reach this fulfillment that we're talking about, but also involves breaking the rules. Remember, Abraham in the Jewish tradition is the classic and first iconoclast. Right? He shatters the paradigms of his society. So when you do that, are you doing good? Are you doing bad? Is it the right thing? Is it the wrong thing? It's the unknown thing. But only by transgressing into the unknown is the future going to unfold. So once again, as I was looking at all this, um, so Ever, Shem and Ever in the Jewish Midrash are run the yeshiva, the academy, where Abraham goes and studies, where Isaac, one of the most famous midrashim about Isaac is when um, uh, uh, Abraham almost sacrifices him on the mountain, the famous uh, ellipsis, the famous missing words are, and then Abraham returned to the lads who had been waiting for him. And there's no mention of Isaac at the end of the Akedah story. And so it's like a field day for Midrash. Where did Isaac, what happened to Isaac? And one of, the most ma- one of the main stories about Isaac is he went to study with Shem and Ever. He went off to study this, to become a, the spiritual, to learn about the spiritual element of life. Yes, Karen? Forgive me, because I, I, I know less of this, of the Torah, than I'm sure anyone here. But I want to understand something. I, I, I think you said that Naming was important. Yeah. I think you said that the Hebrews were called by others. In the text. In the text. So they're being they're referred... They're the ones who cross over physically, and they're the ones perhaps who cross over in other ways. But isn't it true that during the 40 years of wandering, that perhaps plurality of the Jews wanted to go back to the, take the easy way out and go home, and the one who truly crossed over was left at the top of the mountain unable to cross. Moses. Of course. So, so, so again, the ambiguity of what crossing really means. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, I'm not looking for... I, like I said, I, the reason I'm teaching this class 
is because on a Shabbos we have 20 minutes to talk about the portion. So I want everyone to come up with a nugget that they can like. But when we meet for a couple hours, I want us to, let, to sort of to play in this sandbox, yeah. Um, to, and and that's, that's where I'm going today. So yes, absolutely, a beautiful observation. Um, so, when they're running, Jacob is running towards the spiritual, um, the, the, the ethereal, the, and Esau is running to the, towards the pagan temple. And uh, Jacob goes, uh, Jacob is, is pulled towards the tent. Whose tent? His mother's tent, but also the tents of study, the, place, the places where he can, can be, essentially, think of it as a retreat or as a somewhat monastic existence. Think of it as a, um, you know, uh, not engaged in the hairy, messy world, Right? Um, and then Rebecca says something really interesting. She says, Imken lama ze anochi. If it's like this, why lama? Why am I? And the interesting thing about Rebecca is she says this again later in the portion. Um, when, um, on uh, chapter 2746, um, on page 181, if you want to look at the bottom of the page, it's chapter 27, verse 46. So Rebecca said to Isaac, Katsti v'chayai, I abhor my life. A ketz is an end. I, I just, I don't want to go on with my life. Uh, because of the daughters of the Hittites. Because if Jacob takes a, a wife from the daughters of the Hittites, like these from among the daughters of the land, lama li chayim. Not what would my life be worth, but lama li chayim. Why am I alive? Right? Now, we can make jokes about this and call her a, a really bad Jewish mother. Um, I'll, so you know, I'll say Kaddish for you, or a really good Jewish mother, depending on when, you're, when, when you frame this. But twice in her life, in this story, she says, why? Why am I alive? There's something about Rebecca that's very deep here, that she asks these existential, fundamental questions. And that would be a... That, I just wanted to point that out to you. And then interestingly, Esau echoes it. If you look on... Um, Page 174, in verse 32, in verse 31, Jacob says, Sell me your birthright here and now. And Esau said, I'm about to die. What is this to me? So there's these interesting phrases of Rebecca's and Esau, that I don't have the answer to, but that as I was reading the portion, just jumped out at me. These are really like, why am I? That's very, that's Why am I? Okay, so that's Rebecca's question. And if we turn back to 173, this existential cry 
gets a response. lidrosh et Adonai. And she went to lidrosh, to inquire, to explore this um, from God. And the Midrash says, where'd she go to inquire? To, to the house of Shem and Ever. To, to, they were the, so just so you know that they're in the background all the time in this story. And the response she got from God was, two peoples are in your belly, two nations shall branch off from each other as they emerge from your womb. One people shall prevail over the other, and the elder shall serve the younger. So that's what she hears. When the time came for her to give birth, she had twins in her belly. Okay, so the word tomim in Hebrew in verse 24, um, anyone who understands Hebrew can look at the bottom and notice that there's a little note under the Hebrew column with an asterisk. Chaser Aleph. And Aleph is missing because Te'omim is spelled with twins, is spelled with an Aleph. Te'omim. So, and there's no Yud either. So, the spelling of twins in this line is defective. As I guess you'd say in English. It's missing letters. So again, in the stories I was reading, maybe there's something incomplete something incomplete about this set of twins that's going to take a lifetime. Uh, yes? She couldn't have known that she has twins. She couldn't have known that she has twins. Right. But she heard from... But, God, but the voice of God told her that she did have twins in her belly. I mean, that's what the story says. God told her, there are two nations in your belly. Person can rule well, there you go. Maybe they're supposed to be one person. Maybe you're right. Maybe these twins that come out have to spend a lifetime becoming one. one. Yeah, nice, Berea. Thank you. And maybe that's the answer to her question of what's the meaning of life is to become one. Thank you, Joan. Why am I? Why does this, why, why? Yeah. The first came out reddish all over, as though covered with a hairy mantle. And so they named him Esau. And there it says, they named him Esau. And the rabbis don't miss this either. It's in the plural. After that, his brother came out, and his hand was holding the heel of Esau. And then it says, so he called him Jacob, even though the English doesn't reflect this because the English wants to be grammatically consistent. The Hebrew is not. Oh, so it's, it's a singular. Yeah, so he called him Jacob. Who the he was, we're not sure. The, is it Isaac? Was it God? You know, we don't know. And Isaac was 60 years old when they were born. And the boys grew up. And Esav became Ish Yodea Said, a man who knows how to hunt. Ish Sadeh, a man of the fields. The Yaakov, Ish Tam, a simple man. 
Yoshev Ohalim, who sat, dwelt in the tent. Now, you remember the word yeshiva in Hebrew? It comes from sitting, Yoshev. A yeshiva is a place where you sit and learn. So that's why the tradition ascribes him as studying Torah in the tent. Well, why did they say he's a simple man? I thought you said he was intellectually more gifted. Um, let's look at the um, note down here. The word Tom is usually rendered as blameless, upright, mild, and also simple in the Passover Gada. Because, settled. Huh? Settled. Settled? Um, I'm confused by this too, Gary. In Hebrew and cognate languages, it means, when used as a descriptive of animals, flawless, blemishless, or perfect. Um, okay, that gives me some insight. Because Jacob, remember, he's smooth. He has no rough edges. He's, he's not fully formed. I mean, you know, I know it means flawless and perfect, but there's something also, ironically, incomplete about him. That's how I read that. Um, uh, and he, Yoshev Ohalim, he dwelt in the tent. So what's this kid doing? What is this, what is this aspect of self? What is it? One half is hairy all over, knows how to hunt, and lives in the field. And the other one is uh, flawless, blemishless. He doesn't have hair going out all over him, right? He does, he's, he's prepubescent. He's, um, he's an unformed boy. There's something incomplete. Or he's a spiritual, now let's put it in, in not physical terms. Introverted. I was going to go somewhere else with it. He's, he's tuned into the spiritual realm, but he's not, he, he can't realize himself because he hasn't become a, phys, a fully physical, realized being. Someone who can take, someone who can, someone who can get the food and cook it and make life happen that way. What's he, so that's how I was imagining this as I trying to picture. So maybe this story is where the Jewish tradition of not having leaders, rabbis, be family-less, be sexual-less comes from. That it's the search <laughs> for, the, for the integration of the whole. Uh, I would say, and even more so, um, yes, I, I think Judaism rejects celibacy uh, in the rabbinic period uh, and forever, actually, because it says, first of all, it says, prue or rule, fill the earth and mul multiply and fill the earth. Uh, but also because... Um, Judaism, in contrast, though not in stark contrast, but in contrast to early Christianity, uh, when celibacy becomes a norm of monastic life and priestly life, that uh, the separation of, the, the suppression of the physical in favor of the spiritual, Judaism never embraces that the same way. Uh, yes? Going back to when Rebecca says, if this is so, why do I exist? Yeah. I mean, it's an esoteric question, but it's very simple. And I think the bottom line of this whole thing and what you've said before is that we need to ask that question, but then realize that we have to accept what is. Thank you. you. Know, we could struggle with it. And we, it doesn't say here she was depressed for months. It says she had pain. Of course, she had pain when you're pregnant like that. But then she seems to with it, according to the fact that nothing else is written here about it. She inquired, got a sense of what it was about. So 
it's again, it's not it's, the way he said it was so good. Um, accepting what is, while we strive for deeper understanding. Yes, it's another and. Yes. We also see in this that, that Rebecca is one of the few people that speak inquire of God, and God answers her. That's right. Not too many people in the Bible have that intimacy. That's right. Um, uh, in fact, God God communicates to Abraham and to Isaac and uh, to Abraham and to Jacob and to Joseph first. Abraham envisions and uh, uh, calls, you know, and uh, it never says anywhere that Abraham inquired. You know, uh, it's interesting. Rebecca is quite a powerful figure in all of this. Yes. And I struggled last week in the class. I kind of had this sense that Isaac was basically very informed and delayed. That Isaac was informed and delayed. Uh Mm -hmm. And that he really continues that, um, whether he is actually blind or he just can't go further. Whereas Jacob, he struggles. It's like he, he has to come to himself, and Isaac never really comes into himself. It's one of the things that uh, that Judith Jewish commentary treats very deeply is what's with Isaac, um, because uh, and one of the midrashim about why his he could why his eyes were darkened when he's not actually dying. Remember, he's going to live a long time. What's going on with Isaac is again in in myth in sort of storytelling mythical language. When he was bound on the altar, did you discuss this? When he was bound on the altar, he was on his back looking straight up into heaven when the heavens opened. And so he had this un... Um, he was not... He, he saw the light in a way, at a moment, in a way that was unbidden for him. He wasn't, he wasn't ready necessarily for it. And so one of the stories is that this is a... His blindness later in life is as though a delayed, I don't use the word traumatic because it's deeper than that, but a delayed consequence of what he had, what he experienced uh, being, being tied to the altar and seeing the heavens open. And the words are that the angel's tears fell in his eyes as they witnessed. The, so again, Jewish story, Midrashic storytelling is dreamlike and mythic and wonderful. Uh, so if you take that image of somebody having a, an overwhelming vision that they weren't ready for as a child and then never having an opportunity to, uh, to integrate it. But maybe that's why Esau. Esau was this other, this person that tackled life. That what? Tackled life. Took yeah, life. maybe that's why Isaac... See, Isaac favored Esau. That's the next verse. But the word isn't favored. The word is Vayehav. Loved. Isaac loved Esau because Esau put game in his mouth. Okay. Now, does Isaac love Esau better because Esau brings the good food? You know, we got to go deeper than that. What is Esau putting in Isaac's mouth that makes him love him so much? Uh, maybe it's a vibrancy. Maybe it's that vitality, that vibrancy that maybe... That he, he just doesn't have. 
his vision, his lack of vision allowed for the betrayal mm -hmm. of his son and his wife. That's right. So when we talk about seeing God, we sort of imply in that that there's tremendous ability to see. And in a way, it is seeing. It's, it's seeing in an allowing way, allowing de deception to take place, rather than being fooled. Is I'm playing along with it so that whatever unfolding can take place. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And isn't it also possible that in that story of Isaac being bound, Akeda is the word, right? Yes. That that the Torah is telling us at the moment when we're abused, we are presented with the opportunity to perceive the divine if our eyes remain open to it. Wow. Um, I, I, I wouldn't say abused in this context, the way I was describing it. I would say that, um, there, that remember, this is, the Akedah is, is, is not a moment, it can be read this way, but it's not a moment of child abuse. It's a moment of, of, it, it's, how do you describe it? Wouldn't uh, you say near-death experience? A near-death experience. Well, I was, some, of, some last week posited that it was child abuse. You I, can, I, you I, can I, tell I, that story. But, um, if, but if, you, if, you, if you do take that position for a moment, yeah. that if, at, at a moment of greatest vulnerability, facing death, facing being torn apart by wild animals, whether you consider it a, ah. and if we can stay present, the divine, Right, so that's that's why I wouldn't put it as abuse in this case, but as a as a near death experience, when you're you know, when you life flat when your life and death flash before your eyes, when 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 those moments can be also the most. I mean, that's why people seek extreme experiences where they're they're touching that. Uh, um, those are the moments when the heavens open as well. It's testing the faith. Also, uh huh. Um, yes. So now I'm, going, now I'm more confused than ever. Good, good. <laughs> because I, it, when God speaks to Rebecca, I just read that and I, okay, you know, that's what he said. But now I don't understand what he said to her. He said to her, is he saying to her that you are the mother of a, of a future, of the people? Or, I mean, what is he saying? Two people? Are in your belly, two nations shall branch off from each other. Mm -hmm. So is she now thinking, I am the future mother? I mean, I'm. Oh. I'm so glad you're asking that because. And, and, and meantime, uh, um, Isaac doesn't know anything about this, that he's supposed to be the future father of the. Of the, I'm, of so, the people. I'm, I'm so or glad. Just simple people. I'm know? so glad you're asking that because I make all kinds of assumptions knowing the rest of the story when I read those lines. But like, what do they mean? That's a, that's a great question. What does God tell her? And does she now go ahead with this feeling, I am now responsible, my children are going to be the, the future of the people? Or is she just like, you know... Uh, well, based on her future actions, she feels like there's something she needs to special, do to make special. sure that Jacob... Right, that there's something special about her. Uh, I mean, that she is... That, she has a job to do to fulfill this divine um, instruction she's got. Yeah. Um, so. And her, and her husband doesn't know anything about this. Doesn't appear that he does. <laughs> He's just thinking 
thinking, you know, he had twins. You know? There's other places in the I Torah, like you know, when Samson is born, the father, in a, which has done in a very comic vein in the book of Judges, it's a great story. An angel comes to tell Manoah, Samson's father, that um, they're going to give, that his wife's going to give birth to an, a, a son who has to fulfill certain um, injunctions about not cutting his hair, not drinking wine or eating grapes, called a nazir. And the father says, Manoach just doesn't get it at all. And then the angel comes back again and again. Finally, we should read this story sometime again. His wife says, you idiot. It's an angel. You have to listen. An angel, no, it's a messenger from God. You have to listen to what the angel's saying. But without the wife in that story, without uh, um, Samson's mother, nothing is going to happen. So uh, that, that motif repeats itself elsewhere in the Torah. Yeah. Isn't that same? I can't remember exactly how it works out, but doesn't Mary believe now she had just, she has Jesus? I don't know how it reads in the New Testament. Um, I mean, that she knows that she's got this special... The, anybody know that? Yeah. There, there's this phenomenon. There's this phenomenon called divine. Oh, the angel comes to Mary. Yeah. Okay, so the way the New Testament, the way the New Testament works, as we've like proven, <laughs> and I don't say that negatively, is that in order to verify and validate Jesus' status as so special, motifs from the Torah, because the readership was Jewish of the New Testament, so motifs from the Torah were reworked. Um, so that Jesus' life would be in the vein of all of these other uh, important and miraculous events. So yes, I'm not the least bit surprised that that would be true of Mary as well. Um, uh, Marka, and then, I forgot again. It's okay, Barb. Barb. Yeah. Um, I keep thinking of other myths that bring in the question of when we're ready to receive the divine or not, mm -hmm. and, or if it's going to hurt us, like with Isaac. And what I keep thinking of, because I was trying to think of other heels and where that comes in mythology, and I was thinking of Achilles and the story of, you know, he gets dipped by his mother, who has, the, again, like Rebecca, has the existential question of, do I really want immortality or not? Because he's getting dipped in the river Styx. But because she's holding him by the heel, he doesn't get, the heel doesn't actually get dipped. So that's his vulnerable human Esau-like still maintaining of the, you know, non-blessed, non-cooked, the, the, the raw part that's still vulnerable. I think it's another, like on an existential level, it's like, it, was he ready to be fully dipped? Are we ready to fully see God? Or does there have to be that place of vulnerability that still speaks to our own ambivalence about how fully we want the divine, and if we, you know, if we still want just meat and potatoes, and you know, you saw to come and mm -hmm. fulfill <clears throat> animalistic needs. Thank you. I'm I'm thinking further about Achilles' heel. Yeah. Um, and Jacob holding a heel. Holding it's like a of heel. all, yeah. you know, again, not being an expert in ancient mythology, <laughs> much as I'd like to know more. Um, it it seems very clear to me based on what, based on um, comparative study of ancient myths, that there was discourse in the ancient world 
right? There were ships going from the uh, from Greece and uh, to uh, the, the Phoenicia to Egypt across to ancient Babylonia. Everybody knew these stories, and who knows how old the Achilles story <clears throat> is and what the significance, uh, you know, how we might actually do an interesting examination of Jacob, whose name means heel, and Achilles, whose vulnerable part was his heel. Yeah. And again, his mother's trying to his mother's trying to give him this whole protection, but it's her own it, it, human touch of him that, that that disallows that one spot to get covered by the divinity. We can't be immortal because love is here, not the, not in the land of immortality. This is where the this is where the bad stuff is, but this is where all the good stuff is too. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for talking about that. Barb? So, this is going to sound rather dark and not very existential. But, um, and I wouldn't have even given it a second thought if you didn't bring this up, but um, when, when Rebecca is feeling this turmoil within her while she's pregnant, um, and she's probably um, feeling not that great, okay? Maybe she, because, uh, I mean, it doesn't specifically say you know, but, but she's feeling kicking or she's feeling turmoil within her and she asks God, why do I exist? Or, Lama Zanochi. Right. Um, I wonder whether God responds to her because he's concerned because maybe she's thinking, do I really need to carry this pregnancy? I'm sure she's, I bet she's feeling that. Yeah. And, and so, wait, you know, let me let me let me comfort you, or let me not comfort you, or comfort you. Yeah, not maybe not comfort. There's a purpose to your suffering. Yeah, yeah. Let, 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 just be patient. There's be a okay. purpose to your suffering. Mm-hmm. Thank you, thank you, Miriam. I read a midrash about Mary when she was carrying Jesus that she had the same. Oh, I'm dumpy. Why am I doing this? I feel so awkward. Do I really want this pregnancy? So. It's a very similar... That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Lori? I don't know if this is a question or... I guess it's a question. So these are simple people back then. Maybe. <laughs> okay. They talk to God or they pray or they... Whatever pray, that means. They ask questions. Mm -hmm. And then they get answers. Now, I believe that we all have that ability, that we have two voices that we have the voice of this life which tells me, sure, do this, and then for me, another voice comes and says something else to me. Mm -hmm. To me, that's my higher self. I do call it my connection with Creator. Yep. So, the question basically is, in our own lives, how do we, where do we, and do we listen to that higher self? And what, if that hi and what if the answer we get seems so outrageous to us, wrong, um, how, do we, uh, how do we decide? That is the question. That's, that's the question. You know, if we get that guidance, if we inquire and seek, and it comes to us, however it comes to us, wherever those insights, you know, out there, in here, but we know, because it is like, I cannot deny this voice that just emerged in me. And then when we examine our lives, and sometimes it's telling us something that looks wrong, bad, painful, it's going to just break somebody's heart, it's going to 
you know, and that's why, and that's why I said, right and wrong, we want to have moral considerations for everything we do, and then sometimes we get a call where it seems like we might be hurtful, or, and then what do we do? Um, I'm just responding to what the things you were saying. I don't think these people were simple at all. And I think when a story tells us that God, that Rebecca inquired and God told her, we don't know what that means. It may mean exactly what you said uh, about how we, what your higher communication is. Um, Joan? But, but there does seem to be this phenomenon throughout uh, storytelling time of an anointed one who is given a job. Could be male, could be female, could be whatever. But it happens. And mm -hmm. there's always a sense of struggle in those people who are anointed suchly. You know, they go like, hey, why me? I'm, I can't even talk straight, you know, or whatever. Moses, yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, then there's all of us. And we're also divinely anointed. But, but there's something to be said for throughout storytelling time, there's always been those anointed ones. Thank you. But I propose that the purpose of storytelling is that when you hear that, you're that character. Right? That's we identify with the hero. That's what we do. So that means all of us are on a hero's journey. Every single one of us. But if we start, again, going back to your initial comment, that good can come out of apparent confused motive or uh, duplicity, isn't there potentially, and, and we talk about the, the mama not being sure what she's carrying, and then the two warring nations will be, isn't there a lesson for societies of all times that when you are most rent a society into two parts, that we should perhaps be cautious about moral certainty. <laughs> huh, nicely put. And, and reach for what instead? And reach across the aisle, across the womb. Be an Eve What do we have in common? Mm, mm. I love this. I mean, each of us has a sermon to give, a really important sermon to give. That and look the beautiful thoughts that are emerging all around this table. Thank you. Yes. I don't know if I can put this together, but all the thing boils down to sensation, physical sensation. Physical embodied sensation. Okay. Something new that she has never experienced before, and then trying to make I don't know if it's the rabbis or people involved, trying to make sense of this change in their physical existence. And to be told that there are two nations in you doesn't mean anything. It means what she feels in her stomach. Uh -huh. It's she responds and trying to understand what's going on. Mm -hmm. So all that comes from above is meaningless at this point. What matters is the physical. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Blaze? Seems like to ask the question, why am I here? Yes. Is the start of higher consciousness. Yes. And I love that. Rebecca asks the question, why am I here? Mm -hmm. And I've had moments, they don't necessarily last, and we probably have all had moments, 
when we feel so alive and so present and so with it that I say to myself, this is why I'm here. This is what I'm here for. Right. And it could be anything. But I'm just wondering if other people have had those moments. It may not be the only thing that we're here for. But there could be many things that we're here for. But we have to ask the question and inquire in order to... Or even just in the, in the knowledge of that, or the telling of that, the question is, is contained somehow. You know, Thank we may you. not have consciously acted, but that's what, that's what makes us, or appears to make us, humans different from... I love that. Yes, when we get the answer occasionally, oh, this is why I'm here. And it could be on so many different levels. That's beautiful. Thank you. Nathan? I see some of the twins like the, um, the two parties, the Democrats and the Republicans. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. We're both from the same parent, but yet so different. And when one starts taking on the power, like was happening, we didn't allow that to happen by the vote that took place last week. We went the other way. Because once one son or one party was becoming too powerful, so we, we needed to equal it out somehow. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know, somehow there's a relationship. There. I, I follow you. Um, uh, if, if Jacob and Esau are described as kind of binary opposites, then if one succeeds and the other fails miserably fails if one defeats the other then we're in big trouble because life is this integration balance integration that's right that's right and how much i hate being pigeonholed as a this or a that because i'm not you know if you want to know what i think and feel my my uh, you know my political opinions are all over the place you know, and I embody all of them at different times in myself. And yet to be forced into some kind of two-dimensional version of myself is, will not lead to fulfillment individually, societally. And it's a dynamic and messy balancing act. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And that's the commentary, is that when one party becomes too powerful, that's their downfall. Um, that's come out mm-hmm. again and again yesterday and today. Well, I would, say, I would say in general, tyranny, tyrants will fall mm-hmm. because the, the power ultimately collapses and you know, yeah. implodes in and of itself. But the amount of suffering that occurs in the process, if there's only some way we cannot allow that to, to become, to not allow tyranny to, to reign. As John Lennon said, and so it's true, Fred, come before the fall. I'm telling you, so you won't lose all. I'm a loser. Oh, go, John. All right. <laughs> I'm a, that's the line from I'm a loser. Okay. Right. Well, I've often said in that vein that part of the glory for me and the particular um, 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 
illumination of being Jewish and focusing on the Jewish narrative is that we're actually the losers in history. Right? We aren't. We, and yet, we've, we've lived to tell the tale. And by being the losers in history, you've probably heard me say this before, it gives us that perspective on the rise and fall of empires. And how, I mean, when you read the Passover Haggadah, Vahisha Amda, you know, empires have come and gone trying to subdue us. But we're, you, the Holy One, have saved us from all those demise. But we're not looking as a, I would say, this would be generally true of Judaism. We're not looking to run the world. Right? We're not looking to be the next. Um, we're looking for the kingdom of God. That's a whole other story, right? as it were. But uh, So by being the loser in history, we can remember, and I've been thinking about this a lot, that empires rise and fall and rise and fall and rise and fall. And that that does not need to be what we focus on uh, in, our, in our journey. Yeah. And also the Jacob's wrestling from the very beginning, first with Esau and That's then right. with the angel, and then, but it's a wrestling without conquest. It could never be a wrestling with conquest. That's right. I think that's just such a different way of seeing wrestling, because, you know, in other cultures, it's like wrestling is about the victor. Mm-hmm. But this could never be about the victor, because to vanquish your, the opponent is, is to kill yourself. Yes. Yes, I want to say something about that. So, Jacob, as Yitro said, is somehow wrestling in the womb with Esau, wrestles for the, his entire adult life until he spends the night wrestling with the unnamed being. The, it's called an angel in, in our parlance, but it just says an ish, a being, a person, uh, uh, in the night. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and when he, and so the Midrash says, who was that? Ish, who was that angel? It was, every person has a guardian angel. It was Esau's guardian angel. He was wrestling, still wrestling with Esau. When the sun comes, he doesn't succumb. That's what it says. And so the angel gives him a new name, Yisrael. And then it says, the sun rose on Jacob, and he went limping towards his brother, and they embraced. And what Art Waskell, Rabbi Art Waskell pointed out about this is that this is the first time in their entire life that when they embraced, they weren't wrestling. Wow. Mm-hmm. That moment where they weep. Uh, and um, it's beautiful. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful moment of, can we embrace our opposite? Mm-hmm. Uh, to go back to my theme on, on it today. If we, can we embrace it rather than fight it all the time? That requires, so remember that poem by Rumi that, that has gotten so much, we really talked about a lot, which is, can, has anyone memorized it? Gift house? No, the one about uh, out beyond. The field of right doing and wrong doing. Mm. Out, out beyond be, ideas. Of out beyond ideas of right doing and wrong doing, there is a field. I will meet you there. Can I repeat that? <laughs> out beyond ideas of right-doing and wrong-doing, there is a field. I will meet you there. That's, that's, the, that's the, that excerpt of, of Rumi. Um, it doesn't mean that right-doing and wrong-doing 
isn't a crucial part of our equation of how we run our lives. And yet, out beyond that, there's a field. And I'll meet you there. It's not, that's uh, just beautiful. Joan? Just uh, quickly, association that uh, in some of the most ancient scriptures, it is said that the first step to attaining the experience that your heart is looking for is mm-hmm. thirst. Mm-hmm. And that harkens back to, you know, Rebecca saying, you know, for thirst. Right. Experience this discomfort. Yes. No, but her thirst, by asking that question, she is manifesting her thirst. Why am I here is the first question of the first step of the path to get what you're right. looking for. Ask the why question, why? That's the question. Mm-hmm. Yes. My thirst, I want to know. Right. Because right. that can get covered up for your whole lifetime. Right. You can live a great lifetime and never even get to that first step. It appears, yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And then the story says 20 years. I think 20 years. Jacob spends 20 years in, uh, uh, away from home before he's ready to come back. And again, uh, the commentaries call that Jacob's long night of the soul because it says the sun set on Jacob when he's leaving, that's what happens at the beginning of Ayetze, of next portion, and then when he returns and finishes that night of wrestling, it says, and the sun shone, rose and shone down on him. So some commentators treat that whole episode as Jacob's sort of dark night of, that he had to go through to reach the next moment when he could come home again and embrace his brother. Um, Yes. He's lucky his brother was still alive. I know. Exactly. We're no guarantees. Right. Some of us wait too long to make. No guarantees. No guarantees of forgiveness either. Esau is is a very interesting guy because he seems to some aspect of him seems to live in the moment and really be satisfied with what he's he's got, even though. So, but yeah, thank you. Um, I want to. Uh, let's see, we have enough time for me to get to a couple more points. So, in verse 29, just to finish this episode, one day when Jacob was cooking a stew, Esau came in from the field. Uh, there's a lot of commentary about what this field is in general, because when Isaac, when Rebecca comes and meets Isaac, oh, you know what it says. Where was Isaac? He was... Well, it doesn't say meditating. We don't know what he was doing, but that's one of the commentaries. It says, Lasuach, Rebecca's coming on her camel, and Isaac, Lasuach Basadeh. Isaac's doing something in the field, but the best translation is he was, he was meditating or communing with God, conversing. So this Sadeh is a whole interesting thing that comes up again now, and maybe something about Isaac's uh, loving to be in the field at that point in his life when he met Rebecca, mm-hmm. and Esau's being a man of the field, we should discuss that. Because furthermore, when... Um, is that the same field from the Rumi poem? <laughs> is it the, yeah, it might be the same field. Or it could be Ebbets Field, Nathan. <laughs> uh, could be the field of dreams. Yes? Where your mind can just be 
expansive and take in an awful lot. I just, I just came up with a connection here that I'm going to just sh- that I'm going to share with you. So I'm back on page 161. And this is where we may get the sense that Isaac wasn't as damaged as we often make him out to be. Look at verse, it's chapter 24, verse 62. Rebecca is coming back with Eliezer, and it says in verse 62, Now Isaac was coming from the approach to Be'er Lechai Ro'i, for he was living in that area of the Negev. Be'er Lechai Ro'i. Okay, that literally means the well of the one who sees me of the living one who sees me, which is the name that Hagar, Hagar, gave to the well where God promised her that she would have a, that when she was pregnant with Yishmael, that things were going to be okay. And she called it the well of the living one who sees me. So there's a whole other story that we've told that isn't it interesting that Isaac seems to be living at the well, the oasis, where Hagar and Ishmael live. Even though, so when I tell the story of where did Isaac go after the Akedah, I tell the story that he went to be with his big brother, Ishmael, and his mother. mm -hmm. But, so first of all, this is a visionary name. The well of the living one who sees me. Okay, come on. That's a great name. And so that's where he's coming from. Going out towards evening, la suach, our translator says to stroll in the field or to meditate in the field. We don't know what la suach means. As the evening approached, he lifted up his eyes and saw, and here camels were coming. And this is, this is I didn't get to hear Avigal's Devar Torah um, and uh, Rebecca looked up and lifted up her eyes. So Isaac lifts up his eyes. Then Rebecca lifts up her eyes and says, and sees Isaac. And Vatipol me'al hagamal, which literally means she, she got down off her camel, she fell off her camel. She, and... Uh, the Eved, her servant, Eliezer, she asked, who is this man striding towards me in the field to greet me, to greet us? And the servant said, he is my master. And so Rebecca covered herself with a veil. And so the servant told Isaac everything that had happened. And Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother, Sarah, and Rebecca and became his she took Rebecca and she became his wife and he loved her. And thus did Isaac take comfort after the death of his mother. So I'm just thinking, what I never noticed before is that when Rebecca and Isaac meet, it's in the field and then it's in the tent. And there's something this is a beautiful paragraph, isn't it? And yet Esau is a man of the field, and Isaac and Jacob is a man of the tent. 
So something's gotten bifurcated. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like, but I never thought about this connection before. Um, the field is a, we know what the field, that's that field. We know what it means to walk in the field and to see your beloved and to, and then to bring her back into the tent and they love each other there. So there's something about Isaac and Rebecca's meeting that's very beautiful and whole. And yet these twins that come out are not, there's something that has, there's something separated about them that's going to have to be healed. Yes, Gary. Forgive me, you mentioned Rumi, and, and I can't quite get it. Um, but after done, Emily Dickinson is, is, is my favorite poet. Yeah, why not? And she's got a poem that she wrote to her brother that where she says, I'm, pay no mind to faded forests, Austin. Pay no mind pay to... Pay no mind to faded forests, Austin, her brother. Faded pay forests. No to darken feelings. Here is a little garden whose leaf is evergreen. Here is a blank forest where not a frost has been. And then she says, in its unfading flower, I hear the bright bee hum. Prithee, my brother, into my garden. Hmm. You know. Thank you, thank you. I mean, what else oh, is there? Thank you. Forgive me, I couldn't stop. I know. Stop your no rambling. Stop your gambling. Stay out late at night. Come home to your wife and family. Stay there by the fireside bright. That's what I was thinking. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Thank you. I love when people know poems by heart. Well, I couldn't quite grab it. You did great. You did great. <coughs> yeah, that was just beautiful. She's amazing. The whole thing is just beautiful. Wow. Look at Chapter 27 now, page 178. I'm trying to think of how to, what I want to share with you. And I, we won't have time to read the whole chapter. So um, Isaac has grown old and his eyesight had dimmed. And he called his elder son Esau, saying to him, My son, Hineni. Here I am, Esau answered. Look now, said he, I have grown old, and for all I know I may die any day. So pick up your quiver and your bow and go out to the countryside and hunt me some game. Say hasadeh, go out to the field. Um, I want to tell a story about Isaac and that field and what it was, you know, maybe that's where he, i just thinking about that. Then you can make me the delicious dishes that I love and bring it to me so that I might eat it. And I will give you, so that I might give you my, uh, the, the blessing of my soul to you before I die. Now, Rebecca overhears this. And Rebecca said this to her son Jacob. Look, here's what your dad said to Esau. He's going to, before he, and then, now, verse 8, Now, son, listen to me, to what I am instructing you. Go to the flock and bring me two tender kids. I will make them into tasty dishes for your father, such as he likes. You will bring them to your father, and he will eat, so that he may bless you before his death. But Jacob said to his mother, Rebekah, Look, my brother Esau 
is an ish sa'ir, a hairy man. Vanochi ish chalak, smooth. You know, uh, maybe my father will feel me, and I will see be in his eyes like a cheat. Like, it's interesting. He's worried. It's an interesting turn of phrase. And I will bring a curse on myself rather than a blessing. And his mother said, any curse that you will get on them beyond me, son, just listen to me and go get them. So he did it. Rebecca prepared the dishes, took the finest of her elder son Esau's garments that he had in the house, and dressed up her younger son Jacob. The skins of the kids she wrapped on his hands and over the smooth part of his neck. And she put the tasty food and the bread that she had made into her son Jacob's hand. So here we are, going back to the beginning. Jacob is now dressed as Esau. So what's going, think, I want to bring everything we've talked about today into this moment. What's that about for Jacob? He's now, he's, he's, he's pretending to be his brother. He's trying to embody his brother. There's something profound going on here. And it's also trickery. <coughs> it's also pretend. That's why it's like, is this good or bad? Is he being, or is this what East Jacob just must do in order to inhabit the part of him that he's never been able to experience? That's his other half, this, this hairy, earthy, powerful hunter wild, you know, he, he dresses up first. So it made me think about how do we first become something? We feel like we pretend, right? We feel like a fraud. Um, we have to act in a way that doesn't feel right to us in order to become more of ourselves. We can't... So on all those levels of going way outside his comfort zone, right? He lives in the tent, but he has to act like a man of the field now. So rather than just think of it as legitimately this terrible act of trickery, I'm reading it in a different way, if you follow what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. That this is the only way, is to go to his father as this, rather than as this. Partly because his father loves this and wants this too. So he's only been a mama's boy till now. There's something big going on that also is a complete mess. Right? It's going to create havoc in his whole family's life. And yet, if he doesn't do this, he's never going to become the full, he's half a person right? in that story. That's what I was thinking about as I was reading it. Karen? But... Is he really perpetrating the trick, or is it really Rebecca who's perpetrating the trick, right? Is Rebecca making him? But he goes along and he says, I am Esau. He's going along. Well, let's think about, let's think about... He's a reluctant participant. He's reluctant. He's reluctant about being found out. He's not reluctant about doing the... I'm sorry. He's reluctant about being found out in his father's eyes. That's right. And bring a curse. And bring a curse on him. Uh, yeah, let's keep talking. Let's keep talking, yeah. He's reluctant to be found out, so he says, he'll, uh, so he puts on hairy stuff. But why doesn't he think, my voice will give me away? 
And, and his and, voice didn't give him away. And his voice didn't give him away. And his father said, Akol, Kol, Yaakov, be a die in your day, Esau. These are the hand, voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. Um, uh, he did not recognize him, however, because his hands were hairy. Sa'ir, like the hands of his brother Esau. Um, yes, it's a very highly dramatic story. I would say that maybe his mother is kicking him out of the nest. May, I, I just, that, that Rebecca knows as a mother what needs to happen next. Mm-hmm. Um, yes? No, I was just going to say the issue of the mother is a deep one too because it's his time to individuate and he's a mama's boy. Mm-hmm. And so that you know, reluctance too to be kicked out of the nest and that relationship between yeah. him and his mother. Yeah, yeah. What did you want to say, Maria? Well, a lot of cultures, um, the boys stay with their mother to a certain age, and then they go out with their fathers out into the wilderness into and the field. To the field. Out into the field. <laughs> yeah. Out into the field. But he uh, could have turned her down. He could have stood up for himself and said, no, I won't do it. So uh, we might argue that some piece of him, him some piece of him wanted to and knew that. Yeah. I, if I understand the story before, when many years later, um, Jacob made an apology to Esau, yes. am I correct, right? Yes. Um, what's interesting, um, as we know about making apologies and asking for forgiveness, it's really not about being forgiven by the other person, but just unburdening oneself. And so, in some ways, talking about a bigger plan, all that happened for him to come to a place in himself to apologize for past acts, is what I'm saying. That never would have happened had he not seemingly impersonated and everything else. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, Thank you. maybe it was just also, to get in touch with. Not just. Um, this, is, this is the only way Jacob's life is going to begin is if he embodies the part of himself in this twin story that he hasn't wanted to embody. He's been smooth. He's been Tom. He's been blemishless. He's been... You know, uh, and, and so he's not complete. But how do you, so this is just, the story is just fascinating to me, uh, that he has to impersonate this other part that, that he's been wrestling with since he was in the womb. He can't push it away, he has to embody it. There's something that is unformed about Jacob still and does not allow him to be in the field. There you go. That's what we say. Yeah. It, you know, when you're in the field, whether it's the field of battle or the field of work or the field of, right? Je- Esau is the part that's in the field. But um, Jacob hasn't, can't, won't go there. And uh, mm-hmm. Ellen. And then, of course, the next thing that happens is uh, to save his life, Rebecca gets uh, Isaac to send him back to the old country to find a wife where he has to be um, a caretaker of Lavan's animals. He becomes, a, he becomes the, the shepherd. Oh, right. He gets married. He, he has, has children. He develops, yeah, he is, grows up. Yeah. He grows up by leaving his mother's tent. Yeah. And, and, I, I yeah, sorry, Ellen, why don't you say something else? Slightly, please, slightly please. Slightly t- tangential. Please. Tangential. He's gone for 20 years. Yeah. And then he has to suffer thinking that Joseph is gone, is dead for 20 years. That's true. He, 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 That's another of that 
that it's other true. level of, of symmetry in the Torah that, that, that he's gone for 20 years and then he loses his son Joseph for 20 years. Yeah, that's how it works mm. also. Mm. Barb, and then Lori, sorry. Go ahead, Barb. There's a psychoanalyst uh, who I studied years ago, Marion Woodman. Yeah, talks about, she's brilliant. Yeah, brilliant. And she talks about the roots of the bulimia and anorexia that young girls have who want to skip over the physical part and be just spiritual and ethereal. Mm-hmm. And that's her theory of why uh, these illnesses and dysfunctions develop. Right. Because they're, they're not whole. They're not embracing that. They're idea. not bleeding. They're not hairy. They're not, you know, it's a desire to remain smooth-skinned and unblemished. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. And models. I agree with that. Uh, Lori and Joan. It sounds like you said at the beginning that they were two halves of one and they weren't whole, but I think we're all born like that. We're all not born whole. That's why I'm. That's why the story's for us. Right. We're that's all my point. For that. It's not them. It's us. Right. We're all searching for what it is that will make us whole, and it's not necessarily because they were twins. No, twins is a metaphor in this reading for mm-hmm. um, uh, us being coming out. Um, Bifur- bifurcated, you know, and needing to figure out how to integrate. The, uh, yeah, yeah, Joan? Well, um, I don't understand why Esau gets off scot-free. He's not complete either. He doesn't have to go inward. He doesn't have to go find his inward question of who am I. Whereas Esau, I'm sorry, Jacob, uh, Jacob, he has to complete himself and he has to go out into the field and he has to become a man. But where's the other undeveloped side of, of Esau? Good question. I don't know if um, the story is about Esau. Uh, Just to I, focus on the metaphor of... Yeah, I, 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 I don't think the story is about Esau. I think it's about Jacob Esau. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and, ja- and so... Uh, I think the reason I asked yeah. is because there's a slight scent of, oh, one path is superior to the other. Ah, I think that might be true. Yes, uh, because Jacob is the hero of our story. Um, the physical, the embodied. No, no, on the contrary. The, um, oh, are you talking about Esau? That Esau is also incomplete in a certain way, because he's all, he's all passion, he's all <coughs> in the moment, he's all right. emotion, he's all, You're give me impulse. some of that red stuff, he's impulse, right? So he, Esau's not... Uh, not a fully integrated body and spirit being either, I don't think. But he's also, even though he's also not evil, right? There's nothing wrong with Esau. Uh, um, he's not the bad guy, and I think that's important when you in how we read the story. We're almost out of time. Did you want to say something? Well, I'd be curious. Oh, sorry, Joan, did I interrupt you? No, it was just um, you got it. The thing that sometimes it gets interpreted that. This one sure, absolutely. Is absolutely. The midrash could be is that Esau now has his mother. <laughs> you know, a whole story could be developed from what happens when he has both parents and he has his mother. When he gets to be with his mother yeah. as well. Mm-hmm. Because Isaac and Rebecca in their meeting represent a beautiful integration yeah. of the field and the tent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. So what I want to close with is uh, 
Aviva Zornberg points out that by embodying, in her, in her story, which has sort of inspired me here, by, imbo- by Jacob embodying Esau, he discovers the power of his limbs, right? His. Right. He discovers it. He can't do it until he becomes Esau. And then, when he does the beginning of Vayetze, which is the next portion where he has to run away, it's, it says specifically, um, and Jacob went from Beersheba and went towards Haran, um, and then he has a dream, and then after his dream of the latter, it says, um, in chapter 29, And Jacob lifted up his legs and went to the land of uh, the, his, his, um, his, the people of the East. So he, it activated him. It brought him into his physical power. And he was able to... I wonder if it talks about the field anywhere in this. Uh, I'll have to look at that. Oh, so he's, he's strong enough to move the rocks. Oh, that's right. And he then gets there. That's what Aviva Zornberg said. Thank you for reminding me. Okay. And what's the first thing he does when he gets to... There's a stone. He sees Rachel. He falls in love. And he moves a stone off the well that all the shepherds can't move unless they're there together. It's like, this is Jacob, the smooth-skinned guy who liked to go shave Ba'ohal, liked to sit in the tent. And now he's like lifting up his legs and he moves the stone. And so Aviva Zornberg points out that he had to inhabit that quality of Esau, the hunter, the passion, the hairy man, the, you know, this is virility too. And doesn't he kiss her right away? Oh, he kisses her right away. Right, so that's real passion. Real passion. So that, that gets me back around to the beginning point I was trying to make, and I, I thank you for wending your way there with me, which is that good or bad, all the deception that happened, everything somehow had to happen in this story so that Jacob could become Yisrael, so that Jacob could become the integrated adult self, not just the one who dwells in the tent or the one who just studies Torah, or whatever it was he was doing, but the one who can be out in the field. So let inauthenticity be a moment. Let it be a moment. A moment. Yes, yes, when we... Not a state. Yeah, like, state. you feel like you're not a public speaker? Well, get up there and do it anyway. Right. Exactly. You know, and inhabit. Imagine. Right. Do it. Do it. Do it. Yeah. But don't stay there. Don't, right? don't stay there, because in the process, I would say... In my process, when I was in, especially in my 20s, I made so many messes. I made a mess. I had to apologize a lot of times as I tried to inhabit and different parts that I didn't understand about myself. I made a mess of things over and over again. Um, and we get better at it. I think we get better at apologizing. <laughs> I get better at apologizing, but I also get better at not... At not Messing up in the first place, too. I get better. Anyway, thanks so much for doing this with me.